Again, reading Mark chapter 16, it's on page 853 on the Pew Bible. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, bought, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they were not, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this hour of worship that you have allowed us to uh, have and to be here. We thank you for the liberties that we have in this land, that we are able to come and to praise and to worship you. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that it is true and that uh, we can have instruction and reproof and uh, direction in our lives as we live here on earth and that we have the confidence that we do have a place uh, in eternity based on your word. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that death and the grave had no victory or sting over you and that you conquered them. We praise you and worship you because of that. We thank you for the gospel and ask that we would never grow tired or weary or bored with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we owe you so so very, very much, and we praise you and thank you for that. We ask now that you'd be with Cody. Thank you for him. Thank you for the time that he uh, spent this week in study in preparing his message. We pray that you would speak to us through him, your instrument. And above all, we ask that you and you alone would get the praise, glory, and honor. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are so good to us. For in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You hold on your lap this morning the Bible, God's holy word. Can you be confident that the Bible you hold on your lap is God's holy word? And without a doubt, I want to affirm to you this morning that yes, yes, you can be very confident that the Bible you hold on your lap is God's holy word. Now, way by of introduction, I want to explain something. You may notice this morning that I am not preaching from Mark 16, 9 through 20. And next week, if you looked in the bulletin, I'm not going to preach. Mark 16, 9 through 20, I will pick up in Joel. So, what gives with verses 9 through 20? Some of you may have in your Bible this morning a little insert that says something to the effect of some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Well, we know from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all of Scripture is inspired by God, meaning it is God-breathed, inspired. God breathed upon men and women to write His Word. 
But we need to remember that the original 27 books of the New Testament are not available for us to see. You can't get on a plane, go to Israel and say, could you give me the original copy? You won't find those original 27 writings that we know to be the New Testament. So can we be confident that what you have on your lap is the Bible? Well, throughout church history, and especially since 1947, when there was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, great minds have engaged in what academically is called textual criticism. And let me explain a little bit what that means. I'm not a scholar on this. I, you can go look it up and read more about it. I would encourage you to do so. But essentially, what they, would, what they do is they take all of the ancient manuscripts that have been found. And since 1947, there are quite a few. And they analyze them together to see, are these consistent with the original writings? Now, just for instance, since 2005, as of 2005, there were over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, either partial or whole, that attest to the New Testament. That's an unprecedented number. Anything else written around that time has nothing more than maybe 20 or 30 manuscripts that attain to that original writing. We have over 5,000. And so what they didn't do is they, they look and they see where is there a difference between one of these manuscripts and one of these manuscripts. Textual criticism. They, they criticize each text and say, is there a difference? And there is an extremely remarkable amount of similarity. In fact, some of the greatest differences between all of them are spelling errors. Can you be confident? Yes, you can. In all of those manuscripts, there are a few places, Mark 16, 9 through 20, that don't 100% line up to the point that translators of the English Standard Bible, which is the Bible that we use, and other translations like it, include a note to say, hey, by the way, there's a differing thought on this one. Some believe, with great confidence, that it was part of the inspired Word of God. Others have some doubt. So how should you think about Mark 16, 9 through 20? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you that everything in 9 through 20 can be validated in the other three Gospels. All of the information in 9 through 20 is true. There is no heresy. There is no false teaching, false information. So therefore, if you handed a Bible to a gentleman this morning on a street corner who'd never heard Jesus, read the Bible, knew anything about Christian doctrine, he read the book of Mark, read through 16, 9 through 20, you don't need to stop by on that same street corner the next day and say, oh, by the way, 9 through 20, you shouldn't have read. There's some false... No, there's nothing false in 9 through 20. And thus we thank God for that because the inclusion of those verses in your Bible this morning should do nothing... To erode your confidence in the validity and truth of the Bible. But as the pastor who desires to preach with confidence the inspired word of God. I have to make a decision as every other pastor does. About whether or not I'm going to preach these verses. Or to put it another way. Do I have enough confidence and the belief to preach these verses as the inspired word of God? And after all the reading I've done which isn't vast. On this subject, I have enough doubt that I've decided not to preach these. Simply because maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Now, you're going to hear many a preacher preach these verses. 
with great confidence. And they're going to hear many a preacher who have never preached these verses and won't do so. And I'm not a Greek scholar. I've never studied Greek. I've never studied Hebrew. I don't have the academic training to be the conclusive authority on this topic. Many pastors have not taught this section. Some have. I'm seeking to clarify my position that I have some doubt. And therefore I don't believe it would be best for me in my slight doubt to preach those sections. With that being said, we can have the greatest confidence this morning without a doubt. That verses 1 through 8 of Mark 16 has been, were inspired by God to instruct us this morning. Without a doubt. And so we'll tackle those. We're going to wrestle with these verses as we've wrestled with all of Mark. To see, to believe, to change as we read his word. As we understand what God desires from us. So for this morning for instance. We're going to observe that Christ is not in the tomb any longer. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Hallelujah. And our response. What should our response be? And it should be I believe to repent. Believe and then go tell. We're going to take it in three sections this morning. We'll look at verse 1, and then we'll look at verse 2 through 7, and then we'll look at 8 and some closing thoughts. Point number 1, if you're taking notes, is verse 1, and I've just entitled it very simply, Saturday evening. Point number 2 will be Sunday morning. Saturday evening. Well, we know very little about what's happening here, but it says when the Sabbath was passed, that would have been evening of Saturday, the Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. We know very little of these women. History doesn't tell us much more. Mary Magdalene was a woman, according to Luke 8, verse 2, that was possessed by seven demons that Christ uh, relieved from that oppression. Uh, we know very little of this other Mary other than the fact that she had some sons. And yet we would also notice that these Marys, both of them, witnessed not only the death of Christ at the cross. They also witnessed his burial where he was laid. And they're going to be the ones this morning, Saturday evening, as they prepare for Sunday morning, who are going to witness the empty tomb or the resurrection. You notice the Sabbath is over, therefore they can venture out according to Judah's custom and they buy spices. These spices were simply not to embalm, they were to offset the stench of decay. What's interesting here is you, you see two people that believe in Jesus, two Marys here, that have such a love for his life, it leads them to honor his death. This is one of the reasons why Christians for throughout history, church history, bury their dead. Is we have a love for life. Because Christ has given us life and therefore we even honor their life by being very honoring even with their death. But notice here, they're honoring his death and the fact that he is dead. They bought spices they, because they believed him to be dead and to continue to be dead. They didn't buy spices to say, uh, you know, this is just a sort of a holdover. We're going to confuse the Romans. They're going to think he's never going to come back. We'll give him some spices and then voila, he'll jump out of the grave like we all believe. No, that's not what they're thinking at all. They bought spices, believing him to be dead and under the belief that he would not rise. Thus, why the spices if he was going to rise? We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But I want us to just for a moment observe these two women and their love and devotion to their Savior. 
There's not a line at the spice rack. Oh, you're buying for Christ as well? Oh, I am too. There's not 20 deep at the checkout counter for buying spices for Christ. There's not someone taking numbers. Oh, you can go in in a few minutes. There's just two. These two Marys. And even their courage. You can imagine them coming, which we'll see in a minute, Sunday morning, early morning, knowing what they think they're going to face, which is a Roman guard. No one else. Just them. And yet, their love and devotion to Christ being in some ways misplaced. They weren't in Galilee as they were told he would be. He told them, go to Galilee, wait for me there. They're not there. They were at the tomb where they had seen him laid a day or so before. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Oftentimes our love and devotion for Christ is misplaced. And we thank God for his grace to correct us when our love for him in our minds is is out of place. It's misplaced and his word comes and corrects us. Now, for the early church who had been reading the, the testimony here of Mark, they get to Mark 16, verse 1. The early church would not have said, hurrah, for Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of these two gentlemen, are, are more sons. In fact, the, the witness of a woman in that day was really quite low. The woman's testimony of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the empty tomb, now the resurrection news, would have flown in the face of the Jews and even the Gentiles in that day. The women of that day were not given full weight to their testimony. And yet, it's important to note that because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is some just made-up story that the Jews sort of concocted to try to overthrow Rome... If it's some fairy tale or wives tale or something you want to just tell your kids because it's just like another version of Santa Claus or something. You wouldn't have included that. The writer Mark through the testimony probably of Peter wouldn't have said, oh, we'll throw this in there because this will make it believable. If he wanted it believable to them, he would have said, now Peter and James and John walked up to the tomb. He wouldn't have mentioned these two ladies. And we have to understand that because in many ways that is what validates, is one of the validating claims for this being true. Validates the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Mark. Not as a story or as a scheme because you wouldn't have made it up that way in that day. But actually as the word and work of God through his son Jesus Christ. Sending his son for sinners even here like us this morning. Well, let's look at the second point here. Sunday morning. Saturday night, they buy the spices. They get to Sunday morning. This is verse 2 through 7. We'll spend the majority of our time here. Very early on, the first day of the week, Sunday morning, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Notice they're, they're preoccupied still with what they believe is the situation, the death of Christ in the tomb. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Now, Matthew and Mark, excuse me, Luke and John mentioned two angels. Matthew and Mark mentioned one angel. There was at least one angel in the tomb. 
Think of it. Jesus had told his disciples repeatedly in chapter 8 of Mark and in chapter 9 of Mark and chapter 10 of Mark that this in, uh, of this impending death and burial and now resurrection and told them where to go. And yet the twelve did not get the word. They didn't understand it. They, they didn't get the idea. And the women had probably heard some of these things. And yet now here they are in the tomb having hearing now in their own ears of the fulfilled prediction from an angel, a messenger sent from God, that Christ had risen. And they respond as we should all respond when God's word speaks, even this morning, with an appropriate reverence and fear. Think about uh, angels throughout the Bible as messengers of God. Think about Isaiah 6, when the angel comes and, and Isaiah has this vision of the throne room. Or think of uh, Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, Mary's cousin who gets visited, her husband gets visited by an angel, Zechariah, to say you're going to have John the Baptist. And when you look at the Bible and encounters with angel, you don't say anybody just, hey, let's, let's high five the dude. Because they're recognized as messengers of God. And therefore the word they have to speak is not their own, but from God. And therefore the word of God, being from God, is one that people would respond with an appropriate reverence and fear. Notice he says, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He has not here. He has risen. That Those three words in English, in the original Greek, was a one-word sentence. He has risen. It was as simple as that, and yet so profound. Verse 6, The Christ who was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who is risen from the dead. We need to know, brothers and sisters, that sin and death met their death at the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the believer in Jesus Christ, sin and death have no more power any longer because they met their death at the death of Christ and by the power of his resurrection. In fact, the power of the gospel that we seek to proclaim lies not in the cross, but in the resurrection. Now, what do we mean by that? Does that mean the cross doesn't have anything to do with No, the cross is where we see Christ paying the penalty of our sin. But the power of that for the believer's life is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power that lovingly regenerates dead souls to life comes at the resurrection. Christ defeated death and conquered sin by the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 and 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Notice he doesn't say the cross. Oftentimes the resurrection is sort of the forgotten doctrine. Well, tell me the gospel. Okay, God is perfect. Man sinned. Jesus came lovingly, died on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel. Paul's saying, no, that's, that's actually an incomplete gospel, therefore an invalidated gospel, therefore a gospel with no power. Go home. You're wasting your time. If there's no resurrection... But in fact, there has been a resurrection. 
Because the resurrection of Christ points not necessarily to the cross as much as to his life when he was alive. That he was the perfect son, the perfect man, the only one who was ever not born in sin, the only one who did not ever break the law of God, never had a wrong thought or word or action, never did anything that was contrary to his father's will. He was perfect in every point. Therefore, sin and death could not hold him. Think of a volcano, the the power and the energy of a volcano to the point that it explodes forward. And that is exactly what is happening here. There's such power in Christ because of his perfection that nothing could hold him, not even the grave. The tomb was empty precisely because of the heart of Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, being empty of sin and full of perfection. And so we see something like Colossians 1, where we see that because he was perfect, he is even being, even being glorified by the Father. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, meaning Christ, is before all things and in him all things hold together. So because of his perfection and his glorification, that gives us as believers this morning enduring hope. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am Sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because of the perfection of Christ. There's nothing more powerful than the perfection of Christ manifested to the believer in Jesus Christ. Thus the resurrection. And we have to also note... That this gives us hope for bodily resurrection. But in in many ways, and in the way necessary, you've already been resurrected. You've already experienced resurrection. What? No, what do you mean? I'm sitting here. This is not heaven. Trust me. I get it. But under the work of regeneration and conversion and being born again, you were brought from death to Life. You were already resurrected. Spiritually. Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. You have new life now. So spiritually you've already experienced a resurrection. That will just continually bodily. Your spirit's already living eternally. It's not as if it's going to die. You've already, you were dead and you've already been born again through Christ. And so, yes, our physical bodies will perish and pass away. But our spiritual life is under the blessing of eternal life now. Thus, we don't have any fear of death as believers. It's lost its sting. Because the sting isn't physical. It's spiritual. The spiritual coming under the wrath of God for those who have not repented and believed. Death met its death at the cross of Christ for the believer in Jesus Christ. And it is the resurrection 
that assures and powers our justification, our regeneration, and our reconciliation as sinners with the Almighty God. Wait a minute, I thought that was the cross that did that. Well, listen to the Bible. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the cross? No. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Does that mean the cross is important? No. 100%. But look at the power of the resurrection. Romans 4.25 Who was delivered up, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by His life. He is alive and that is what reconciles us to God. So do you believe in Jesus? Mark isn't giving us much more than that question to deal with. Do you believe in the Jesus that was a good man or the Jesus that is resurrected from the dead and all that goes with that and is required if he was resurrected from the dead. He has to be the son of God. He had to have been perfect. And all that he said is now validated. Do you believe in Jesus? Romans 5, 6-11 For while we were still weak We could replace that with another type of biblical language For while we were dead Spiritually, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Do you notice the play on words Mark uh, Paul has there in Rome, Romans? Because he also tells us there is no one good, no, not one. Well, if there was one good person, which there's not, that's what he's saying, you might die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, bad, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The resurrection power. Have you seen it changing your life? Have you seen it changing your life? How do you get that resurrection power? Belief in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more. What does that look like? It looks like repenting of your sin and trusting Christ's blood to be that which makes you right before God. It makes you say, you know what? There is nothing I can do that's going to earn me acceptance with God other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. For those who repent and believe, there's life in his name. And we don't even have time to unpack that as much as we already have, but life, life eternal, life forever, life full and abundant, life full and abundant now even. Through Jesus Christ. We'll notice verse 6. Back in Mark 16. And he said to them. Do not be alarmed. Verse 7. But go. But go. Now you've heard the good news. Now you've seen the power. 
but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I just want to note very quickly here the kindness of God to sinners. All 12 of these men, 11 at this point now, Judas has taken his life. They've all fallen away. They've all rejected him. Peter made bold statements. Peter denied Christ. Peter denied Christ not only just before the rooster crowed, but also in the garden by falling asleep. And I think it's one of the the sweetest evidences of God's kindness towards sinners that he says here, and go and tell them, you'll see me again. Go to Galilee, I'll be there. It's not over. Your, Your relationship with me is not based upon whether or not you got it all right. It's based upon the fact that my power caused a resurrection. My love is so much more than your in uh, unlovingness, your imperfection. Go to Galilee. Exodus 30, uh, excuse me, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Well, finally, verse 8. If we looked at Saturday evening and Sunday morning, verse 8, the rest of our lives. So if Mark 8 is the last inspired verse of the Gospel of Mark, it's a very odd ending at first glance. Look with me there. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Close the book. (laughs) Mark, give us an epilogue. (laughs) Put a bow around it. Bring it together. Tie it. No. Just closes it out. For they were afraid. And yet, is it really that odd of an ending? Let's think about that. Trembling and astonishment is the way the book ends. And if you think about it, that's a pretty, if not spot on, response To the news of God's divine love for sinners being cemented into history forever by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would almost be even, it would be even more odd to end the book with. And they ran out just, woohoo! Because all of history has just radically changed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of it. And their silence would not be long. It was fairly short-lived. Matthew gives us the account that they would obey and they would go and they would tell the disciples and Peter. And one of the things I want you to notice here about the resurrection account here in 16, 1 through 8, that is unusual. Only, it's the only, uh, Mark's is the only gospel that records it this way. Matthew, Luke, and John record Christ appearing. We see Christ post-resurrection. Mark doesn't. We, never, we don't see Christ anymore here. And yet the messenger from God, the angel, proclaims the truth, affirming the testimony of God throughout Mark and, the, and really calling us back to Mark 1.15. He is who he said he is. Repent and believe. Mark 1.15. That's all Mark's telling us here. I've told you. Since verse 1 of chapter 1, the good news, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is the way it starts. He ends with, and he was Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. Repent and believe. The final picture is not Christ resurrected 
bodily, seen bodily, although he was resurrected. The final picture in Mark, if you will, is the empty tomb. The work of Christ on earth was done and yet eternity still waited. The tomb was empty because the person that was in it on Friday night was not like you and me. He was the savior of the world. And that's what Mark's been driving at since Mark 1.1. You see, the, the, the title of today's sermon was The Empty Tomb. But the empty tomb is precisely not the point. Because if it was just an empty tomb, that's exactly what Mary thought. You're the gardener. Have you moved the body? If it was just a wives' tale, anybody could have gone in there, overpowered the Romans, moved the body. If the tomb was that big of a deal, in fact, all of history is saying, look for the empty tomb, then yeah, we can, we can work an empty tomb. But the point exactly is not the empty tomb as much as Christ has risen. The Son of God wasn't in the tomb because he was the Son of God and he had risen. History, archaeology tells us all kinds of things. And you can read vast things about these tombs. Very few of them held round stones. In fact, of the about 900 that they have uncovered where they think Christ's tomb may have been, four have round stones. So when you're driving down the road and you say, ah, look at that. And you'll see it around Easter. All the round stones, the empty tomb. It's not the point about the tomb. You're missing it entirely. It's the point that he is risen and not in the tomb. It's the point of who he was. The son of God. Most of the tombstones actually were cork shaped. And they were very large and you couldn't have one person move them. And they were sort of fit in and slid out. And big enough stones at that point with gravity. Do you want to try to scoot it? Or do you want to get a couple guys on one end and kind of flip it up and roll it? Thus some of the writers in the Gospels say rolled the stone. Or moved the stone in other places. But let's not get caught up with necessarily the empty tomb. The point is if Christ rose from the dead. If that's what happened, and that comes through belief, all of history, indeed of all eternity, pivots on that point. All of it. The knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, the resurrected Christ, and all the implications of that resurrection is why Mary and the other Mary fled. Because really, the implications of that resurrection were a million power watt power supply into their lives. That turned on the apostles, the disciples... All of those who have followed him. Thus, you have the book of Acts. The reality of the Messiah resurrected was the dynamite that blew the church forward. It's the dynamite even now that takes a human life and says, I'm not interested in living in a way that you like. This world is not my home. I'm not an ambassador of Texas. I'm of a heavenly realm. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what changes a person to live like that. Living not for themselves, but for the one they represent. Thus, we look at the gospel every Sunday morning. Christians should be continually confronting themselves with the gospel and the implications of the gospel for their life. And we do so to grow in our admiration and exaltation of Christ. What's the opposite way to do it? Take our eyes off the gospel and we look toward our sin and our sin becomes actually a lot less. Oh, it's just a mistake. It was an oops. We have a low view of sin and therefore we have a low view of Christ. 
if we take our eyes off the gospel, off the work of Christ for us. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, a low and feeble sense of sin will always produce a low and feeble sense of the value of salvation. A slight sense of our debt to God will always be attended by a slight sense of what we owe for our redemption. It is the man who feels much forgiven who loves much. Our obedience to Christ, our faith in Christ will always go through emotional changes. You even see that in the two Marys here. Like waves on an ocean. But if our barometer of our faith and obedience then to Christ is in our emotions. That is, you know, I really don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like talking to this person about Jesus. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I'm too tired. I just want some me time away from the family. If that's the way we are, we are energizing our obedience and faith to Jesus Christ is how we feel, that's James 1. Driven by wind and tossed. Not faith at all. But if the barometer of our faith and obedience is the person and work of Christ, thus looking at the gospel, then by his grace we can form our actions, our attitudes, our motives, our desires, irregardless of our emotions, to that which gives him glory. That's what we're called to do. Give him glory for his grace given to us. In closing, Mark 1.15 How the book began, repent and believe. Christ is not in the tomb. He is risen. Our response should be to repent, believe, and go tell. The implications of the empty tomb should be for us, as it was for these women, alarming and astonishing. Our thoughts of God are often more like a big fuzzy teddy bear. We can just sort of hold and when we want him... Otherwise, he sits nicely in the corner and comforts us when the boogeyman wants to come out from underneath the bed at night. And we can sort of look his way and go, oh, but he'll help. That's what it is oftentimes. But nowhere in Scripture, when God reveals himself to sinful humanity, do we find anything but fear and alarm. Now, I want to close by thinking about this concept of fear. The fear of God is the beginning of Wisdom. So am I suggesting this morning that you quake in your boots, that you will maybe not be saved, and God will exercise all his wrath upon you as a sinner? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. The women here were responding to seeing an angel. We should not downsize God to our level of understanding. Because he is the same God that was yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God who destroyed humanity in the Bible due to sin. Think of Noah. He's the same God we worship this morning who promises to punish all those forever who are under the curse of sin and not set free by the blood of Jesus. And yet he's also our Heavenly Father. So how does, how does a, an appropriate fear of God balance with a love of God? Well, the closest way I can explain it is through our, our view of a father. I love my earthly father greatly. I have no problem approaching my earthly father, asking him a question, getting his view on something, expressing to him a concern. But I also have a healthy respect for my father that prevents me from just going to him in his home and, 
and disrespecting him. Or speaking ill about him or ill about my mother, his wife, either, either in his presence or somewhere else around that, that's not in his presence. It keeps me from telling him what to do and what not to do. And though even I'm an adult and have my own children, I'm not interested in invoking the displeasure of my father. Does that mean I do not love him? Not in the least. So why do we oftentimes do it differently with our Heavenly Father? We think that fear can't go hand in hand with love. We're saved. We love God now. We don't fear God. And well, Really? That's not what the Bible says. Let's not cast a bad shadow on fearing God. Fear and love are not in opposition. They actually hold hands in the Bible. Let me just explain. For instance, some fear heights. Because they love their limbs. Right? Some fear, many, I believe us here today, fear hurting our spouse because we love our spouse. We fear our sin will cause our children to run from the church. Why? Because we love our children and want them to walk with God. Our fear appropriately keeps us loving and living as we should. It's a healthy balance. It's a grace. It keeps us from not doing whatever we want to do, but what we know is the right thing to do. So think of this. When you, when, think of you being told some unexpected life-changing news. I'm not sure what comes to your mind. Maybe it's the wondrous news of a pregnancy. Maybe it's the exciting job change or relocation. Whatever it might be that's unexpected and life-changing. We've all had those in our lives probably. Oftentimes, that big news is received with tremendous excitement in the midst of soul shaking at the possibilities. And it's just, I can't believe this is happening. I'm not quite sure how to really take it in. I'm, whew. Multiply that soul shaking by whatever that good news is that you may have received by eternity. By eternity. And I believe we can begin to understand the appropriate response of these two ladies to leave in trembling and astonishment. We aren't children, brothers and sisters, of Friday's death at the cross. We aren't children of Saturday's morning of Christ on the cross. We are children of Sunday's good news that Jesus Christ has risen. And I trust and pray that that news may be the dynamite to our soul this morning and this week. Driving us to greater heights of love for him. And also driving us to tell the world of the grace of God through Jesus Christ for sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you for the succinct nature of it. There's no doubt this morning from your word of the centrality of this book. And that is to make evident for us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, suffered, lived perfectly, died, was buried. And because of his perfection, rose again from the grave. And the appropriate response is only one. Repent and believe. 
So Father, I pray that we might not be wowed this morning. I pray we would not be delighted this morning. Though those responses are appropriate, that our first response would be belief. Hatred for our sin, love for you, our God, manifested for us upon the cross of Christ and guaranteed by his resurrection. That we might love you more, that we might be overwhelmed by the work of Christ for us. And we will believe that he is who you say that he is. And we would be delighted to tell others and encourage them to wrestle with that as well. Father, thank you for ministering to me. Thank you for ministering to this flock through this book. The delight has been to study the book of Mark and I pray that you would cement deeply. You would anchor our souls to the bottom of the the truth of this word that no matter the winds that may blow through our lives, that our soul through our time in the book of Mark would be deeply anchored, immovably anchored in the work of Jesus Christ for us. We thank you for this time and we ask that as we sing now that you would continue to encourage our hearts at the truth that we have seen from your word. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand.